Hello and welcome to the Jacobite Podcast. Episode 13. Meet the Hanoverians. It was a typical autumn day on September the 18th, 1714, when the boat docked in Greenwich. Out of this boat came 90-odd staff, including chefs, tailors, two court mistresses and two Turkish manservants. Finally, out came Georg Ludwig, the elector of Hanover and the new king of Great Britain. Accompanying him to be met by the high and mighty of his new country was his son, Georg August. Georg Ludwig of Hanover was born in the city he would later rule in June 1660. He was the son of Sophia of Hanover, upon whose lineage the British Parliament had settled the crown, in order to prevent Jacobite and other Catholic claimants ruling after Anne. He'd married his cousin Sophia Dorothea in a political marriage and fought in combat in the wars against the Turkish Ottomans in Vienna. Domestic bliss was shattered, however, when Sophia had an affair with Count Philipp von Königsmark, another German noble. Now, George Ludwig wasn't blameless here. He'd had a long-running affair with Melusine von der Schulenberg and later Sophia von Kielsmanseg, both of whom accompanied him to the UK. Now, obviously, George was fine with himself having an affair, but not his wife. Königsmark would disappear in mysterious circumstances, with legend saying he was buried at the Lorneschloss Castle, while others say he was drowned in the river. In an interesting twist in 2016, while renovations were being conducted at the Lorneschlosser, bones were found in the basement that some felt could have been the lost count, but later scientific analysis had determined that there were at least five different people and some animal bone and nothing concrete, so the mystery in that one continues. Georg forced his wife into imprisonment in Alden and kept her under lock and key, never allowed to leave, abandoned in Hanover, whilst her now estranged husband, his mistresses and their child went to London. Permanently separated from young George and the rest of her children, Sophia Dorothy was divorced and forbidden to remarry. She lived under armed guard alone for three decades, before dying aged 60 in 1726. When Georg Ludwig arrived in England, his name was anglicised to George Louis, and on the October 1714 he was formally crowned as King George I of Great Britain. George was a rather straight-laced and uptight man, maintaining his distance from the language barrier as much as anything else. He had an axe to grind against the British administration, He'd still been chafing at the Treaty of Utrecht, which incidentally was signed in 1713, not 1711 as I'd said in the last episode, so my apologies. George blamed the Tory government of the time for suing for peace with the French and abandoning Hanover and the rest of Britain's European allies in the War of the Spanish Succession. George explicitly blamed the Tory faction for the peacemaking, even going so far as to call them undercover Jacobites, and he sought to remove them from positions of influence, relying increasingly on the Whig party to rule. To say the public took the coronation of this minor German duke badly is to make a rather large understatement. At least William could claim via blood and marriage to Mary to be the rightful heir, and Anne was James II's daughter. But George? Some people claimed there were over 50-odd better claimants, all disqualified because of their Catholicism under the Act of Settlement. The people of Great Britain were not interested in 
being ruled by out-and-out foreigners, and especially not one seen as so squat and unattractive as George was claimed to be by other accounts. Pamphleteers had a field day decrying him in the many public pamphlets issued, seen this foreign interloper who made hay with lurid details of his wife's lover's rumoured murder. George was burnt in effigy in the streets, and many laughed at the fact that his wife may have originally referred to him as having a pig snout. For loyalists, the new king was the best bet to keep Catholic royalty and by logical extension France from the door and seizing the throne. But despite the riots and the cries of damn all foreigners and no Hanover, George led a controlled but rather unglorious court. He would arise from his bed quite early, but he barely left his staterooms until noon. He'd then consult his ministers for around three hours and go back to bed. He then walked the gardens, he attended the theatre or the opera, and sometimes played cards with his mistresses. He was not an approachable man, and his lack of grasp of the English language led him to rely on a small coterie in his increasingly Whig administration. The shunned Tory party may have started to consider James III and VIII might be a better bet as king. The populace began to show its apathy, if not outright disdain, for George. On his birthday, toasts were drunk to the old pretender, as James Francis Edward Stuart had become known. Another mob attacked the stock exchange. Some order had to be restored. In its panic, the Whig government passed the Riot Act. Passed in 1714 in response to these disturbances, the Act was to come into force in August 1715. It was to be used if more than 12 people assembled. The civil authorities could then issue the following proclamation. Our Sovereign Lord the King chargeth, and commandeth all persons, being assembled, immediately to disperse themselves, and peaceably depart to their habitations, or to their lawful business upon the pains contained in the Act made in the first year of King George for preventing tumults and riotous assemblies. God save the King. Incidentally, you now officially know the original meaning of being read the Riot Act. Upon reading this to a group, that group then had one hour to disperse or face the full wrath of the authorities, who were indemnified against causing injury or death. If people continued to riot and damage property or persons, this was then also punishable by the death penalty. This act was so useful to Britain's law enforcement it was kept on the books until 1973. It was used in such incidents as the Peterloo Massacre of 1819 and the 1919 Battle of George Square in Glasgow. As 1714 turned to 1715, the Jacobites began to mobilise. Believing the people would support James to remove the House of Hanover, they were aided in their preparations by the arrival of Viscount Bolingbroke in France in March. Bolingbroke was a minister for the Tory party under Queen Anne, and he'd been dismissed from office. He'd had the accusation of Jacobitism hang over him, until he decided to seemingly confirm everyone's suspicions by joining James Francis Edward Stuart over in Lorraine. He was warmly greeted by the Jacobite king and awarded the title Earl of Bolingbroke, but he was rebuffed of his offer of writing royal proclamations. Rather than pander to the king and court, he instead stayed with a lover in Paris. Unfortunately, she also had an affair with the Abbé Dubois, a man known for selling intelligence to foreign governments. And suffice to say, whatever Bolingbroke planned, the British government probably had an inkling. It probably also didn't help he would drink with the Earl of Stair, the son of the Stair that plotted the massacre at Glencoe. 
What's all the more unbelievable is that Stair was the British ambassador to France. So when Bolingbroke drank, he invariably spilled Jacobite gossip and plots to a member of the British establishment. Suffice to say, Bolingbroke hardly comes out of this as a competent Secretary of State for the Jacobites. This is a sad and unfortunately recurring issue for the Jacobite court in exile. People who arrived there were largely picked for their grounds of loyalty rather than any professed abilities in terms of military or diplomatic prowess. This was often secondary in the eyes of the Jacobite court, and there's no better example of this than Bolingbroke's later writings, in which he decried women were in the court, which was populated by Irishmen and people in a state of almost self-delusion. These men would then cheer the coronation riots and the chaos of meeting houses being burned as heralding the impending return of their king. The court in Lorraine was so confident in its ability to replace the House of Hanover, plots began to be devised of a campaign to raise an army, march on London, and seize the government and the crown. The Duke of Berwick, the king's half-brother, concluded the country was rising in support, which he'd felt on a visit not long after Queen Anne's death. This sentiment was echoed by foreign governments. In reports from Prussian ambassadors, they stated support for the Jacobite cause had risen massively since the ascension of George I. James Stuart issued a declaration in January 1715 stating that he would again protect the Church of England, and whilst maintaining his own Catholic faith, to convert he felt would be disingenuous and give his enemies cause to question his loyalty, but he nonetheless said there'd be some wiggle room that should he be restored to his family's rightful place, his exile had humbled him, and he would strive to rule on behalf of all of his people and enter into discussions on religion once he was safe. And so... The plans were drawn for a military campaign in 1715. This was to be a war on three fronts. Troops were to be raised in Scotland and the north of England, almost in tandem, so as to draw the government into a panic reaction. It would then be that the main thrust of the attack would hit England's west country, seizing Bath, Bristol and Plymouth in preparation for the arrival of the king. James sought a divine mandate for his ventures and sought the blessing of the Vatican. He petitioned Pope Clement XI for assistance in protecting the Catholic Church, which somewhat put him at odds with his proclamations about serving the Protestant people of Britain, but it's clear at this point James was often targeting his messages to particular audiences at the time. The planned West Country assault was planned for June 1715, under the command of the Duke of Ormond. The Duke had been a former commander of the army, but under King George he'd fallen from favour as the Duke of Marlborough was appointed in his place. As was seemingly a constant for some of the British nobility at this time, Ormond vacillated between Hanover and Stuart houses. A cynical man might say that both houses were played off each other by these nobles to see who would be of the most benefit. Uh, this one could argue Ormond was no different. He was a man of great standing and influence, but Sadly for the Jacobites, not known for his military prowess. Again, a man picked for prestige rather than ability. The plan, however, to invade the West Country came to no fruition. Ormond was indicted for supporting the Jacobites and he fled, leaving the campaign leaderless and scrambling. Ormond's replacement, Lord Lansdowne, tried to keep to the plan and rally the troops outside Bath under cover of a race meeting. As the men assembled and loitered, word reached them that their plot was discovered, and they scattered in haste. 
The West Country had not risen for James, but it had caught George's government somewhat by surprise. They sent troops to quell it, but they had also developed a contingency plan to evacuate King George, just in case. The Jacobite cause suffered its next major blow on September 1st, 1715, for on this day, at the age of 76, King Louis XIV of France died as a result of a gangrenous infection. The Bourbon court was thrown into mourning and paralysis as the new administration sought to settle in. The new king was Louis XV, the Duke of Anjou, and the great-grandson of the monarch popularly referred to as the Sun King. Aside from his victories in Europe and his intrigues against England and Britain, it's hard to overstate the importance of Louis XIV's support of the Jacobite cause. France provided troops, officers, supplies and weapons, as well as transportation, and the French state had pretty much bankrolled the campaign in Ireland and provided asylum to James II and VII and his family. But I should temper that with a major caveat, which is that French support only extended so far as advancing the French interest. Once the French achieved peace in 1713, the Jacobite cause was discarded, as was James Francis Edward Stuart, just as it had been for James II after Ottrim in the Irish campaign. France is often cited as a key Jacobite ally, but I'd argue they were the true definition of a fair-weather friend. With Louis XIV dead, Louis XV was now in charge. Given that he was only five years old at the time, however, Louis had a regent to manage his affairs. Louis was the Duc d'Orléans, a man named Philippe. Philippe was keen to undo what he felt were his uncle's wrong-footed policies. He was keen to seek peace and ally with Britain. Therefore, he saw no need to muddy the waters by providing support to James and the Jacobites in exile. A more shocking development was the loss of the Duke of Berwick. Berwick had become a naturalised French officer at this point in his life. He'd been lauded for his valiant service to France during the arduous war of the Spanish succession. James felt that, given his prowess and his skill in all things military, Berwick, his half-brother, would be ideal to lead the armies of the Jacobites. But Berwick was to disappoint his brother by turning down the official commission sent in October. James was livid. He went so far as to call Berwick a disobedient subject and a bastard and state that this would be the last time he asked him for anything. Berwick's involvement in the Jacobite cause will end here. He will serve a distinguished military career with France before dying in battle during the War of the Polish Succession. To be honest, the 18th century had tons of succession struggles. By the time he was finished castigating his half-brother, however, King James was playing catch-up, because do you remember those two diversionary fronts that he'd planned for his assault on the West Country? Well, they've jumped the gun and they're starting the fight without him. In August 1715, a Scotsman had been journeying to his homeland with sedition on his mind. His name was John Erskine, the Earl of Mar. Mar had been a supporter of the Union with England and was appointed Queen Anne's Scottish Secretary until her death. With King George, he was fired from his job and left thousands of pounds in debt from ministerial back pay he was owed. Mar had also, like many in Scotland, slowly come to resent the provisions of the Act of Union, including the despised malt tax, which hit the key crop involved in Scottish whisky production. Many in Scotland had begun to grow heavily disillusioned with Union, feeling the benefits had only been one-sided, bar some prosperous lowlanders in Scotland's major cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh. Mar arrived to London, 
and tried to petition George for a more federal system, pledging 16,000 troops from his lands to defend the House of Hanover. But King George is said to have publicly turned his back on him. Stung by such a public snubbing and the loss of that money, probably led Marr to decide to support the Jacobites. He fled London in disguise, sailing back to Scotland via Newcastle, because given what he was planning, he didn't wish to alert the authorities to his movements. Arriving back at his estate in Braemar on August 20th, 1715, Marr assembled Jacobite sympathising nobles and clan chiefs. Now, some of these questioned his loyalty to the Jacobite cause, because the Master of Sinclair had written that his devotion extended to occasionally kissing and looking at a miniature portrait of King James III, but in truth, Marr had hedged his bets for quite a long time and had maintained a correspondence with James when he was in Saint-Germain in 1710. Marr weaved an elegant tale that support for the Jacobites would lead to repeal of the Act of Union and a restoration of the independent Kingdom of Scotland. Now, this might not have been policy, but it managed to stir the emotions of those opposed to Union, which was emphasised further on September 9th, 1715, in the town of Kirkmichael. It was here that Marr and his assembled nobles raised the Jacobite standard, with the cross of St Andrew on one side, and the other the words, No Union. It was clear this was now beginning to be pitched as a Jacobite struggle of England versus Scotland, from the Jacobite Scots perspective. This newly raised Jacobite army swept through to Dunkeld and Perth, through Atoll lands, where we again encounter the Murray family. The Duke of Atoll wrote to London to inform the government the Jacobites were on the move, he tried to help them coordinate their campaign and promised men from his estates to fight them. But his own sons, Lord Charles Murray, Lord George Murray and William Murray, the Marquess of Tullibardine, had all defected to the Jacobites, taking 300 men with them. Mars' forces would now number around 20,000 and be at the height of their strength. Many of these men had had no choice and they had been forced into it by their landlords, such as Mar, whose enforcers were told to torch the houses of anybody who refused to fight. It was left to one of the loyalists in Scotland to rally the government's forces and prepare a counter-attack. He was John Campbell, the Duke of Argyll. Whilst desperately trying to rally troops and convince his superiors that yes, there was a growing issue and he understood that there was a threat of invasion to the south but if they didn't act soon they were going to lose Scotland at this rate, he also had to underline the issue of confusion and miscommunication between English politicians and their Scottish counterparts actually on the scene. Argyle needed men, but in truth he kept Murray's offer of Atoll men at arm's length because despite his requirements, Atoll had three sons in the Jacobite army, so his loyalty was instantly considered suspect. Argyle was a grandee in terms of Scottish politics, and Hanover's strongest force in the north, with a powerful clan Campbell backing him. But he was also a competent military man. He'd helped lead campaigns on the continent. Chroniclers noted his talents in battle, and in truth, King George probably had the best choice to defend his Scottish lands. The Jacobites, on the other hand, had Mar, who was far more at home in the intrigues of palace and court, rather than the fire and smoke of a battlefield. And unfortunately, the men leading the fight in the north of England weren't much better. Thomas Forster was a 35-year-old Northumberland parliamentarian 
who was picked as a prominent Protestant Jacobite, whose constituency could provide an ideal base for the king to land, as well as disrupt the country's coal supplies. His military experience was next to zero, and he was accomplished by Lord Derwentwater, a 26-year-old wealthy and popular landowner. Derwentwater often insisted on being addressed as general, despite having had absolutely no military experience whatsoever. The Northumberlanders initially tried to seize Newcastle and the surrounding area, given that they believed the mayor was a Jacobite and would turn out for them and hand over the city. But in reality, the Whig-based troops held the city, forcing the Northumberlanders to look elsewhere. And so it was that Forster, General Derwentwater and their men marched north to Kelso in Scotland to link up with Mars men. On October 24, 1715, at a joint meeting, James Francis Edward Stuart was declared James III of England and Eighth of Scotland, and the manifesto of the Earl of Mar was read aloud, which contained the following proclamation. The late unhappy union, which was brought about by the mistaken notions of some, and the ruinous and selfish designs of others, has proved so far from lessening and healing the differences betwixt His Majesty's subjects of Scotland and England, that it has widened and increased them, and it appears by experience so inconsistent with the rights, privileges and interests of us and our good neighbours and fellow subjects of England, that the continuance of it must inevitably ruin us and hurt them. Cries of approval rose, along with shouts of no union, no malt, and no salt tax. The revolt had started. The 1715 Jacobite Rising has begun. Next time, we shall dive full on into the Jacobite Rising of 1715, where the forces loyal to the king over the water seek to overthrow King George of the House of Hanover. This battle will culminate in the last pitched war on English soil, as well as a battle in Scotland to decide the future of Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs>